Hey there, this is Dean Kapitsky, Managing Editor for the Miscellany News, and you are listening to More Than Miscellaneous, a Miscellany News production, and the show of record for the paper of record since 1866. And on this edited down hour of More Than Miscellaneous, we'll be talking to Jackie Beloy, MISC Sports Editor, Henry Mitchell, Opinions Writer on the word moderate in American politics, and a special guest, Jessica Zahn, former MISC editor-in-chief. She'll be talking about Vassar in the 90s, as well as a batch of bad acid that made its way from Woodstock 94 to Vassar. All of that coming next. Uh, so if you could just tell us a little bit about what you do for the MISC and what it's like doing your job as a sports editor at Vassar. Yeah, so I became the sports editor this year um, with Doug Cobb. I've been writing for the MISC since my sophomore year, doing a lot of on-campus coverage, at least before the pandemic, and then also um, just takes on professional sports. So mostly I write and then also recruit writers and then edit for our section and then put it together. Um, I really enjoy it. I really do enjoy doing on-campus sports, just to be in the community and interviewing different student athletes. Yeah, Jackie's uh, been writing for a couple years now been the beating heart of our Vassar on-campus coverage, teamed up with uh, a former lacrosse athlete, Alessandra Fable, who's now an alumni, to do some great features writing. And if you've picked up a MISC uh, from a couple years ago, you might have seen some interesting uh, stories, maybe perhaps uh, uh, a a feature on (laughs) power couples at Vassar. You want to take the airwaves to to defend to promote that story? I think it was one of our most popular articles. And, um, yeah, we did a feature on Jesse Eklund and Max White, va- swimming power couple. I mean, they're still a power couple. They're both still here. Um, it was really fun to write. They were really down to do it, too. Yeah, and it was actually hanging up in their room, I heard, for a while. So I would love to do another one if we have another power couple on campus or do another fun feature like that because it was definitely uh, really enjoyable. Yeah, I love that piece. Um, anyway, so blasting forward to 2021, um, you covered uh, with a new writer, Sophia Ryder, the Vassar women's rugby team. Uh, so my first question to you is, what is rugby? <laughs> what is rugby? Good question. Um, I'm no no expert on the sport, but it's definitely, like top, I think, one of the toughest sports out there. Um, no padding, no anything really similar to football and soccer. I mean, for our our women's rugby team here, which is what we decided to cover, they're one of the most successful teams on campus. So all these athletes featured in these photos, they are some high-class, really talented um, athletes out on the field. Yeah, so they are, like you mentioned, maybe the most competitive team on campus. They won the championship in 2019 or 2018 uh, national championship. Mm-hmm. Are there vestiges of that team still remaining? I My college years uh, have all been messed up in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I think there might be one or two still there because um, that was from, I mean, they'd be seniors now, and I know they have a few, like, super seniors and fifth-year seniors on the team, but that was, like, one of the biggest struggles, I think, um, with returning back to competition is they have a lot of turnover um, because of the pandemic because they weren't allowed to play for essentially two years 
since they are mostly a fall sport, they do play in the spring as well. Um, but that was when we were talking to head coach Tony Brown. Uh, that was a big thing across the entire sport and probably across all co- college athletics is this loss of leadership in the upperclassmen, like loss of experience. And especially with rugby, when you have a lot of new players, like people who have never played the sport before, then coming into the team, um, it definitely is a struggle trying to keep that field experience. They don't have much. And then also trying to teach the game to all these new people while also trying to maintain this tradition of excellence. I think they seem to have a really good community. That's one thing that was really focused on by all the players and the coach. So I think just community from those traditions, I think they still have a chance just because they have such good grounding and good um, building blocks like in the program already with the coach and with the players that are still there. Yeah, so rugby was one of the few teams that – had to drastically change the way they played during COVID. Um, most of our city sports were still practicing, but rugby decided, what was it, to not hold competitions, to not hold practices? Uh, they decided to have practices, but they decided not to compete. Uh, yeah, so the college, athletics decided in the spring that they were going to allow competition. This is the spring of 2021? Spring of 2021. And they were one of the one of the only teams, I think, to hold out. I think men's rugby was also one of them. And they just didn't feel comfortable with playing, being non-vaccinated, and bringing that kind of um, risk to their community, to their roommates, to their neighbors, to their friends. So they were allowed to practice, but especially with co- um, rugby being a really high-contact sport, like you're literally holding other people most of the time. They decided to hold back on that, and um, it was a really difficult decision, especially with all other varsity teams deciding to go forth with competition, those that were allowed. Um, it So it just kind of set them back, not set them back, but, you know, more time without competition. So going into this fall, they really had almost two years of no real competition, like playing against real competition besides themselves. Did they voice, anyone on the team voice any reflections on that decision now? We interviewed one senior, Emily Howell, and she just, when we asked her about it, she just said because the risk that it did pose, they just didn't feel comfortable, which I think is really admirable, and decided it was a very much like a team decision as well, that they were all on the same page and decided not to go forth with it. Turning the page to the 2021 fall, how have they been going about teaching these freshmen and underclassmen how to play rugby basically since it's it's been a couple years of um, drastic changes in in the practice type Um, well their coach is very experienced he's been here for a really long time and obviously has been very successful with them winning national championship and consistently competing for the national championship so I think it all starts with him and just like teaching those basics and those fundamentals. And then also just the community, again, uh, really that's what really attracts a lot of the athletes to the team. And I think just from there, they're really helpful and all wanna get better. So I think just the coach uh, really knows rugby, obviously, and then also just the community, like wanting to learn, being passionate, wanting to play together, seems to be how they're really growing into themselves. Is there anything from the from your reporting from working on the piece that 
you thought was interesting but uh, didn't make the cut anything uh, between the lines I think we covered like most of it I was I mean I've known the rugby po- coach for a while like just heard about him and it was really interesting and you always love to hear um, the, all three athletes that we interviewed both three of the four they were really appreciative and really wanted to spotlight how important the coach was to the program um, and I just think Sometimes there can be a lot of coach turnover, and he's been there forever. So just the fact they mentioned that and now he really is what roots and attracts people to the community, I'd love to see that in a coach on a team and creating that positive environment. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking about rugby. Uh, <laughs> any passing thoughts on the Chicago Bears or F1? Oh, um, I mean, the Bears, we won yesterday. Uh, I'm glad that we're seeing Justin Fields actually play because, you know, we love a good quarterback controversy in Sick Chicago. of the red rifle already. Yeah. F1 next weekend, I think, is the next Grand Prix. Really interesting. Everyone should tune in. It's a great sport. Yeah. What's coming this week in sports? I'm going to write something on the NWSL. Uh, I don't know if anyone's heard, but it. I think the league is shutting down because there was one of the head coaches of one of the most accomplished teams in the league uh, just got fired for sexual misconduct, which is a huge deal, and the commissioner had to resign. So big shakeup, especially like in women's soccer, which has been part of like headlines for a long time, just like with their excellence and with what con- like consistently what professional like women's soccer players have to deal with. So I'm ex- excited to present that. Yeah, that was a bombshell report. I mean, mm-hmm. allegations of pressuring two female players to kiss. Um, yeah. It's pretty gross stuff that's going to surely rock the league um, and change the way American women's soccer works. Um, so we're excited for that piece. Jackie, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having Looking me. Looking forward to the next time, absolutely. going to play a bit of an interview I had with former news editor, former editor-in-chief uh, Jessica Zahn. She was here in the 90s writing for the MISC, actually created the miscellanynews.org as we know it. Um, she had an interest in computer science and these days she's working on Minecraft for uh, Microsoft. So that was a great conversation. We talked a bit about covering the campus, what the culture, social culture was like back in the mid-90s, to use a Jonah Hill movie reference. Um, here's Jessica Zan, former editor-in-chief of the Miscellany News, talking about the 90s, talking about a batch of bad acid that made its way to Vassar from the Woodstock 94 festival. That's coming next. If you could just introduce yourself, your year, how long you were on the paper, I guess, and anything else you did at Vassar while you were here, maybe your major. Hi, I am Jessica Zahn at Vassar. I was known as Jessica Thaler, and I graduated in 1996. Uh, I joined the paper, I think maybe my second semester of freshman year because I needed an activity. I wanted to you know, do something, and that seemed like a kind of fun thing to do. Um, and started as a staff reporter 
eventually became, I think, definitely news editor and then eventually was editor in chief and then, you know, whatever title they give you when you're like the retired editor and you get to sit on the editorial board still. Um, I did an independent major in comparative drama, basically, because I wanted to study as many foreign languages as I could. And they were like, well, that's not liberal arts. So figure out how to make that liberal arts. And I'm like, great, European literature. So that's what I did. And what I do now is I am an executive producer on Minecraft. I've heard things about the Vassar in the 90s. Um, as a news editor, what was covering campus like? You know what? It's hard to answer that because, you know, I didn't go to any other college, so I don't have any other experience of what college, you know, what it was like. I mean, when I look back and think about like the types of things that were the big drama of the day, they're all so dumb. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> all right, let's hear it. <laughs> the, I'm going to tell you the, the dumbest thing that I remember, um, which was, you know, I'm sad that I don't still have the t-shirt, but there was an art exhibit um, in the college center, like the part of main building that is the new part in the back. Um, sure. And uh, this art exhibit had a goldfish in it for some reason. And one night someone decided to liberate the goldfish and this is November. And they put the goldfish in Sunset Lake, which it would almost certainly die immediately because that lake was cold by November and the goldfish should not be in water that cold and left a note about the liberation of the goldfish and how much it meant to the world. And um, I'm sure that you can go back. Um, this is probably um, probably my junior year. So probably 94, um, you know, fall of 94. And basically there was, you know, all this drama about liberating the goldfish. Um, and we had goldfish t-shirts made because, you know, it was kind of funny. Well. Uh, the thing about the goldfish is interesting because I think that something like that would, I don't know what the reaction was, what was then, but I think that that would be met with a lot of cynicism and, and like, you're being stupid. You're not, yeah. not doing any, like you're, you're just being blissful and ignorant and you're not really doing any work or activism or something like that. I, I don't know if that, I, it, Vassar is definitely a more cynical campus, maybe, than the impression that I'm getting. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just so much more that we know now that, like, that we're, like, I, I think that that was, like, a super dumb thing. Like, I don't, like, no one knows whether the person who wrote the letter and liberated the goldfish did it as a parody or did it for real, right? It ended up with everyone sort of making fun of it because that goldfish almost certainly died, and that isn't the way to liberate anything, right? And to like use a goldfish in a bowl as a metaphor for something is, you know, it's stupid. It's really stupid. But it caught on as a, an interesting story that people wanted to, you know, find out who did it. So it, it was intriguing in that respect. Whereas maybe now it would be like, Really, that's so dumb. You just killed a goldfish. What for? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think someone, a couple of years ago, there was this rumor going around. I think someone put up like fake flyers about how they're going to drain Sunset Lake. Uh, <laughs> and they, there's uh, the, the goal was to basically just do the same thing as the goldfish, just to like make everyone angry. <laughs> uh -huh. Have you seen any of our April Fool's issues? No, not, not from then. Oh, we always did an April Fool's issue every year. And it, yeah. like 
you know, I think we thought we were really funny. I'm not sure. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were hilarious. <laughs> Maybe we might be funny. I'm not sure. That would be an interesting thing for you to look at, though, um, because it kind of like shows you where the like because it was intended to be parody, right? Like, mm -hmm. what are the things that we thought people would think were funny or would um, seize on as you know being interesting? Were you guys conscious of like certain lines you can cross? Not to use words like woke or PC, but I'm curious what you felt was publishable in, in opinions or, you know, making a joke for joke's sake or, or you know, we're thinking about the harm because that, that's something that we're dealing with a lot right now. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like what, as an editor in chief on a very liberal campus, your sort of editorial senses were like. Yeah, I mean, that there, I think that there was um, a lot of concern about anti-Semitism, um, there was some about racism. You know, we talked, a, like, I don't know how what the ratio of men to women at Vassar is now, but, mm -hmm. you know, when I was there, um, I think it was like 68, 32. Um, so wow. they're like, yeah, like, I don't know if it's closer to 50, 50 now. Yeah, definitely. It is. Because, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I feel like, um, men really like there was definitely a, a, a view that men felt like you know they were the minority and that they should have support like there was drama around having a women's center room in the college center because there's way more women than men at the college so why should women have their own space and not men which I think is like like while the the lived experience at Vassar might be slightly different, um, you know, still we're all people in, in the rest of the world that are dealing with um, different types of discrimination that often men don't experience. So that was interesting. Um, we had a lot of what we would call, not a lot, but when when something would happen, we'd have a speak out, which would be like a bunch of people getting together and um, people being able to like get up and say how they felt about something, right? Sure. And I know there was some controversy that both I and Jess Barron were part of. She might've been the, the editor-in-chief at the time and I had just handed at being editor-in-chief over to her, but there was some big controversy our senior year. Um, so nine, I think fall of 95 or spring of 96. That, that's all really interesting to hear about. Um because it's so much changes you know on a college campus but in a lot of ways it stays the same so i'm i'm just curious to hear about that and really uh there's there i i have some some serious goals for this project but really it, i'm i'm just i very much enjoy working for a student newspaper what it represents as the paper of record and also just the weird shit that we have to cover <laughs> and the stupid stuff. So that's wonderful to hear about that. I really would like to hear about this acid situation, if you have any memory of it. I, you know, I reread it when um, you sent it to me and, you know, I don't remember much about it. I remember the people that I talked to for it. Um, and I think like, you know, the thing that I think about when I read that article now is I um, had never done it any drugs other than like smoke weed when I was in college. So I had zero familiarity with what these things were. And I feel like that sort of comes through, not that I'm like very experienced now in my life, but like, you know, as an adult, I know a bit yeah. more and yeah. I read it and I'm like, 
oh, I really had no idea what even acid was or what would happen or like the language. It sounds like that uh, Steve Buscemi meme, like, you know, hello, fellow kids. You know, like that's how I, when I read it, I look at that, I'm like, oh, I was that guy. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there were lots of drugs on campus in general, right? Um, it, I don't think that it was the most visible thing in the world to, you know, someone like me who had, you know, a small friend group and, you know, we drank underage, I guess, but um, that bar, uh, the, the Dutch didn't uh, check IDs, so we could uh, go there <laughs> whenever we wanted to and drink, and then there's always someone that can bring alcohol um, to a party, but um, I, didn't, I didn't personally experience a lot of people doing drugs or things like that, but it definitely went on. There was definitely, you know, people from New York that, you know, can get anything in the city, right? So, I think that's really how it came to Vassar. And then certainly at some of the big parties like the Homo Hop and other um, you know, major events that took place in the College Center, um, there was definitely, there's always something weird going on in a corner somewhere, right? Yeah, and what, what struck me about this was the fact that it was connected to the Woodstock Festival in 94. I thought that that's where it gets very interesting and that the Poughkeepsie police were on, on the case of this. I, I've been trying to figure out the story for a while. Uh, I, I tried contacting the, the police officer, I think you talked to, or the, the chief of security. I think he's passed away um, since then. But uh, I'm just curious what, what, what your impressions of, of what was happening, because it seemed like this was really serious. People were shaking for days after. Uh, and it's, it's also funny that you said that you were kind of cringed because you, you felt you were very naive. I, I don't th think that came across in your writing. I think it came off very reporterese. Uh, maybe not, uh, I, don't think, I don't think it comes off as naive. The one thing is I thought was hilarious reading this was um, because uh, there's a quote, um, tripping can be fun, healthy learning experience. I think it's only illegal because people on acid question established rules too much government and college are just afraid of the knowledge that very vassar but i don't think today anyone at vassar would say that oh no no i think that's i think that that sort of um stick like uh questioning authority is is coming from a different place now a more cynical place or a more like a structural um if you get what i mean about mm -hmm. racism and economic disadvantages and stuff. I, I don't think people are so focused on, you know, drugs, uh, liberating thought. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I also love the $5. It's like, it's, <laughs> there, yeah. the, the student was not concerned about the health because uh, it was only $5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as if that makes any difference at all. <laughs> that is definitely a vaster thing that people would say now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, and and the, the the whole notion that there would be 30 people in Maine using acid at once is crazy. That seems like an acid party. That seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't seem that crazy to me because there were, you know, different, you know, groups of people, different areas. Like there were some you know, pockets of, you know, party places. Anything that I'm missing that you recall about reporting at the time? I'm curious how you, um, how the whole production process worked. It's crazy. Monday, we would, you know, have our editorial board meeting to figure out what's going to be in the paper. Tuesday, Wednesday, get writing. Wednesday to Thursday, 
we would be laying out in PageMaker on our old Mac SEs. Thursday night, go to the printer where we had to do like physical paper, messing with like big pieces, sheets of paper. And then Friday, pick it up from the printer and distribute around campus. So it was exhausting. Wednesday night and Thursday night were, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. in the office every week. And uh, I feel like I did the MISC full-time and did school part-time. Yeah, that's definitely a sentiment that people still express, that it's a full-time job and that you're an editor first and a student second. Uh, what made you want to take that burden on? I wanted an activity where I would interact with other people, get to know other people. I felt, you know, kind of lonely in the beginning of my time at, at Vassar, and I thought I could write. Like, I thought I could do it, so I did. I really loved it, and what I loved about it was um, the broad knowledge of what's going on around campus. Like, I loved going out and talking to people about, you know, what was happening, different points of view, and then synthesizing that into a story. Um, but for me, uh, when people ask me, like, they're like, oh, well, you did your college newspaper, and you did your internship at the Poughkeepsie Journal, and then you went to graduate school for journalism, and why don't you work in journalism now? The answer is that the types of jobs that I've had in tech are actually very similar in that I go out and I figure out a whole bunch of different things and synthesize that into a story. And that's true whether, you know, for all of my different tech jobs at Microsoft, as well as, you know, working in game development, you know, it's figuring out what the right thing to do is and putting together a plan to move forward. So I think a lot of the same skills are super applicable, even if I'm not reporting the news. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that, that that makes perfect sense, and that's exactly why I I want to go into journalism because I appreciate the social aspect of it, the fast pace, the the pressure. Exactly. Uh, the <laughs> deadline motivation definitely helps. Thank you so much for your time. Sure, it was good to talk to you. Good luck with you know your story and what you're working on. Yeah, if, if it comes out, I'll definitely send you uh, the podcast version. Oh, please do. All right, thank All you. Right. Take care. All right, bye. Well, that was Jessica Zahn talking about Vassar in the 90s. Uh, fast forward 26 years, we got Henry Mitchell in the studio now. Welcome to WVKR. Oh, I shouldn't say welcome because you have your own show. But first, uh, yeah. uh, 1 to 2 a.m. on Tuesday nights, if you're ever listening Thank you. at that hour. Thank you for the plug before I can even get a word out, Henry. Um, well, as you can probably tell, Henry's a opinions writer. But uh, first, first piece for you um, came this week, uh, talking about this year. This this year, yes, talking about um, the political landscape in the U.S. More specifically, the world, actually. So, if you could set the table for us, what is your bone to pick with the word moderate? Uh, so, I think that in the United States, especially the 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 media has kind of gotten the the picture the whole like completely wrong about who is a moderate. So if you ask yourself who is a moderate, uh, I guess most people would think, well, a moderate is someone who takes positions that the majority of Americans take on issues, or at least most issues, uh, because that's in contrast to people who are on the extremes who take unpopular stances on issues. Uh, and if you look at who the media has called moderates in recent years, people like Mitt Romney uh, and even um, Susan Collins are they actually moderates? And I, I think if you look at their actual p 
policy positions? The answer is no. Uh, do they actually take popular positions on policies? And the answer is usually no. So, yeah, I mean, that word is so politically confounded, moderate. Does that mean popular? Does that mean middle of the road? What are some of the yeah. positions that uh, a Collins and Mitt Romney, uh, Kirsten Cinema have that make them quote unquote moderate? And, and how do those line up with like the American populace? Well, of course, the American populace is a little more conservative on on average than in some other countries, but it's still not. It's still pretty progressive if you look at the data. And uh, middle of the road uh, is shifting, and it's it's in the way I would define middle of the road is uh, where the vast majority of people stand on an issue, and that's of course changing. But um, so, for example, on uh, abortion, right? Uh, well over fifty percent of Americans support keeping Roe v. Wade. I think it's over 60%. And, of course, people like uh, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins uh, do not. And uh, gun control. over Almost 90% of Americans support uh, universal background checks, and over 70% support even stricter measures. And yet, of course, none of these people support any sort of gun control. Uh, and minimum wage. Over 60% of Americans support a $15 minimum wage. And, of course, these people don't even support a $10 minimum wage. You know, Medicare for all has over 50% support. And it's not even just about the one issue. But if you look on, on the whole, they're not taking their, their positions on almost every issue is really outside the mainstream. And that's fine. But I think that the, you should we should call them what they are. And that's a conservative, not a moderate, you know? Yeah. So why do you think that journalists, the media, the big media use uh, these terms that for you don't line up with the, the political identities of these Republicans? Well, I think a, a lot of journalists kind of have this um, kind of obsession with bipartisanship, and they 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 need they need to uh, feel like they're they're treating both sides fairly. And so, if one side has a moderate, then of course, of course, if there are moderate Democrats, then of course there must also be moderate Republicans. But is that really true? And I think it's not true. You know, the, the Democratic Party is so broad that it encompasses both both moderate liberals and moderate conservatives. Uh, and the Republican Party is so narrow ideologically and so far, far on the far right that it encompasses really just conservatives and even and, and ultra ultra conservatives. Um, and so I think we have to be honest about that. Like, are there really any moderate Republicans? And I would say, at least on a national level, the answer is is really no. But I think the media has this kind of it still has it in its head that it has to be fair and balanced, and they think the way to do that is to to talk about both sides equally, even when the issues aren't equal. Yeah, and in an international sense, how does the U.S., its political nomenclature, fit in um, to that puzzle? Because there's been some confusion with recent elections in Germany, recent elections in Canada, with these parties that identify as conservative taking up quite relatively liberal causes. Well, I guess the, the, the big difference in our, and what does make it challenging is that in the U.S. we have a two-party system. And, of course, our two-party system has gotten so skewed that one party represents such a wide ideological swath of the spectrum. But in these other countries, and it was very interesting for me as I was following the, 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 the elections in Germany and Canada to see. So in Germany, for example, there's, uh, there's uh, five parties that have that have a, a significant number of seats in, in, in and won a significant number of seats in the recent election. Four of them would be
be parts of the Democratic Party if they were in the U.S. And there's only one that might be Republican. So they have the uh, the uh, SPD, which is a Social Democratic Party, and they would be pretty far on the left side of the Democratic Party spectrum. They have the Green Party, which would also be more on the progressive wing of the party. They have the, the CDU, which is the conservative party in Germany, but they would be moderate Democrats. Uh, and then they have the FDP, which is also, a, it's kind of a pro-business, but also socially liberal party, and they would also be Democrats. And that's four parties that would be Democrats in the U.S. And then there's one party that would be probably Republicans, and which is the, the quote, far-right AFD. But actually, uh, a lot of people in the AFD would probably be to the left of some people in the Republican Party. Yeah, it's, it's very strange because <laughs> you have these... Uh, nationalistic parties in Europe like Marie Le Pen in France who are have some connection with the far right um, sort of culture wars class in in America but they hold fiscal policies like welfare programs that would be at odds with the Republican Party even very fringe far right groups in the U.S. Yeah, it's really hard. In, in a lot of countries, there really is no comparison to the Republican Party ideologically, except for maybe the like ultra-far-right neo-Nazi parties in some countries. Not, not to say that Republicans are neo-Nazis, but that's the, the closest thing ideologically in, 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 in countries that don't have like a really, really ultra-conservative party. And so, I mean, because it's so off-base internationally, I mean, is the same problem applied to the term liberal? Is that not a representative name for um, liberal, quote-unquote, politicians in the well, U.S.? I think uh, it, uh, liberal is also uh, overused. And I, I, if I had more space in my article, I would, I would mention that. But you see, you see, it's, you know, in the New York Times, um, they'll describe anyone as liberal who is, uh, you know, even people like uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who probably wouldn't identify themselves as liberals. They'd probably say they're a leftist. And for and for a lot of people, being a liberal and a leftist means two different things. But then you know you look at in the media, and they, they usually will just use the word liberal to define all of that, and it can get confusing because uh, a lot of people on the very far left actually hate the term liberal, and they they don't they they hate liberals just as much as they hate conservatives, and yeah. so. Uh, to, it's just to use the word liberal can can confuse a lot of Americans because a lot of people just think liberal means anyone on the left, but actually it, it doesn't. It means people kind of on the center left. So it is that's another issue I think. But you know, I guess part of that just comes down to need to oversimplify things for a wide audience. So if you were in the um, New York Times editorial meeting. Maybe they're having their their meeting on Monday after the Sunday paper comes out, like we have our paper critiques. Uh, what are you suggesting that they call the John Kasichs of the world, the Mitt Romneys? What what are we doing with the term moderate? Well, he's a conservative. That's just let's be honest. He uh, opposes same sex marriage. Uh, opposes that's Kasich or Romney. Both. Okay. None of them have come out and said they they might have said. Oh well, we accept the Supreme Court decision. They accept the decision, but they, they, they never said that they they actually are happy about it or they support it or in favor of it. Right, supported by the the government. Right, right. Um, and you know they oppose an increase in the minimum wage. They don't really support taking any action on climate change. 
None of these things are popular. So just call them what they are. They're conservatives, you know. And that, and that, and that, and I think sometimes they're scared to do that because then if we're calling John Kasich a conservative, what does that make uh, Ted Cruz? <laughs> I guess. And I don't really know. I don't know. <laughs> ultra ultra conservative. I don't know. So that's. But I think just be honest about that. A moderate is people like Joe Biden, right? Or you know. Ted Cruz is from Texas. They're allowed to have. <laughs> thing going on there uh yeah it's it's a it's an interesting discussion um when we talk about uh these these terms that these terms of journalism kitsch um that sort of get worn out and as the years go on they they lose their meaning and what puts this in relief for me is um the presidency of donald trump where moderate basically became anyone who wasn't going right. to go along with trump Right. Yeah, you saw people like Liz Cheney get uh, promoted as moderates, and it's crazy because they were not even identified as moderates even by anybody before. Like, she's so con- she's one of the most conservative people on most issues in, in Congress, and yet she's being called a moderate just purely for the reason that she went against Donald Trump when he tried to take over the government. But of course, she didn't go against him for the four years before that. She just happened to go against him when he tried to uh, overthrow the democratic elected government of the United States. And for that, she's a moderate. <laughs> and maybe if we have more time, we could talk about how the moderation process of Vassar students as they move to Brooklyn <laughs> and slowly move farther out into the suburbs and, and gain uh, secure secure housing and secure jobs and then send their kids to Vassar where they become annoying leftist students <laughs> i'd be curious to see that <laughs> but more on that later henry uh thanks so much for writing this week thanks for coming in that was the full more than miscellaneous radio hour vassar's show of record for the paper of record since 1866 i'm your host dean kapitsky managing editor of the miscellaneous news today on the show we had jackie malloy talk about rugby we had henry mitchell talk about the word moderate and we had Jessica Zahn, uh, always an honorary member of the Vassar community of the Miscellaneous News, talking about uh, the 90s. So come back next week, 9 a.m. We'll be doing this again uh, with a more smooth production process. Uh, we'll play you out with a little bit of Ray Charles, because why not? Sometimes I get a little worried But I want to tell y'all it's all right now Yeah Because I got a woman
horses always treat you right. Never running streets and uh, leaving me alone. She knows the place now, right there now in her home. 